This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, folks. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. And I'm joined with my very good friend, Rob Hadley. Um, a people and culture strategist specializing in DEI and people analytics. Hello, Rob. Hey, Nadia. How are we doing today? Doing great. It's such a beautiful day today. It is a beautiful day. Well, I guess we're in different places, so it's a beautiful this day here true. as well. Glad to hear that, Nadia. So we had the we had uh, Dr. Juliana Simonetti last week, who I have somewhat of a relationship with, a twenty year relationship yes. with. She's my partner, spouse, wife. What do you want to say? Best friend. Best friend. She, she's a. You she's know, she's a my best person. friend too now. And yeah, no, that's what I wanted to 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 share with you. How many, how many people over the last week do you think have told me that I married up in life that they so much more enjoy hearing her than hearing me? Ten, well, ten I know or, ten at, or more. I mean, I know at least one person that said it. <laughs> um, probably, including my co-host. Yeah. Including your co-host. I would say maybe seven people said it to you. Seven. I think it's over 10. Yeah. So no way. Really? Yeah. Yeah. People really enjoy it. People did you really tell Juliana her. this? Yeah, I did. I said, uh, yeah. I said, it's it's hard to <laughs> to hear. You know, I, I, I probably wouldn't have brought her on if I knew I was going to hear all week about how much more awesome she is than, than I am. So, Rob, you're but, just uh, But you know good. what? It says a but lot about me, so too. so fun. It says a lot about me too, right? That Where's she sees something in me. Yes, this is true. She she saw. She sees my potential. Still, she sees your after potential. All these years. No, you both are such a lovely couple, and I love you both. And I was just so excited to have her on because she just has so much knowledge in um, medicine and obesity, you know, and just um, it was great. So you know what? I feel like you both married appropriately. Nobody oh, married thanks. up here. Oh, thanks. Not what you said this week, but yes, thank you. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, should we get to the deets? Let's do the deets. So this again, I, I don't always want to talk about it, but I feel like we have to talk about our friend, mm-hmm. Mr. Mr. Elon Musk. 
He's in every news article. Like, I literally was just going through, like, New York Times and Washington Post. It's like, Twitter, Elon Musk, Twitter, Elon Musk. And I'm like, I'm so over him. Yeah. So I went from a little bit of a different angle, right? So there's something that I found particularly egregious that I haven't seen a lot of. I've seen, you know, a little bit on LinkedIn. And that was the fact that he, one of the first things he did was disband the ERGs, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just thought that that was just a particularly egregious thing. If you think about so employee resource groups, for those that don't know, or affinity groups, these are things that companies form and, and use for, for many reasons. ERGs, they're often a safe place for employees of minoritized or marginalized backgrounds within a greater company. They're incredibly helpful for creating mentorship opportunities. They are often the source of product innovation, et cetera, right? You and I, Nadia, have talked about, and we've had debates about the efficacy of ERGs and, and yeah. some companies have a really good reasons to move away from them. And that's certainly in flux. And if you did a long review of the ERG and you said, hey, this isn't working for whatever reason, we want to go in a different direction for this this employee population. That's one thing. That's not what happened here. This oh, was without actually, no, this was without actually meeting with them or, or being aware of what they do, what they bring to the organization, just disbanding it. And so that just sends a really stark message that I don't give a shit about these issues or these employees. And I just think that, that it's just particularly racist. I feel like it's almost threatening, right? In some ways. Yeah. Right? How do you feel about it? How would you feel about it if someone walked in and just said, we're just getting rid of these? You know, we have clients, you and I, who've asked, like, do, you know, who kind of jump to a solution, like, and say, let's, let's, we have to create an ERG group. We have to create a business, affin- like an employee affinity group. And, my first question is always like, well, why? What are you trying to solve for? Are you trying to solve for retention? Are you trying to solve for creating mentorship, development opportunities? Do you want to build awareness? And oftentimes, I think that's what they're built for. Um, so th- I, I hope they're built for a reason. Now, totally agree with you that there are organizations right now moving away from them because they aren't maybe doing some sort of audit. Like you're not, they're, they're not as effective as you had hoped for them. But he, like you said, is coming in and kind of not understanding. He's not seeking to learn or understand participation, um, events, kind of what it, what are the benefits, what are maybe not the benefits of having these ERGs. He is using his power and privilege as a white, you know, male to show dominance that he doesn't that he doesn't think that they're valuable. And to me, that's. That's the basis of white supremacy. So I I said it. <laughs> and he's at you know, he's advocating for that. He also dismissed so many other groups like the employees that were working on human rights within the organizations and some of the other entities within the organization. So like I he just doesn't value that what diversity, equity, inclusion brings to an organization. That's maybe an assumption I've never spoke to him. I think but it's I'm pretty, pretty clear. I'm pretty, pretty I'm pretty clear. sure it's on point. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things he did was this past week was he sent an email to all employees in the middle of the night, also not press practice, just on its face, sending emails yeah. in the middle of the night to all your employees, saying that everyone had to commit to being hardcore or be fired, right? And so, um, first of all, like the over, there's an over t- the top broness of that language for right, hardcore. Does that kind of language inspire you, Nadia? Would you, no. are you are you into that? So you know, people will work. 90 hours a week for a vision, right? They will work in terrible conditions. They will work with desks that are literally doors ripped off the wall and onto sawhorses. And they will 
you know, they will use non-effective resources and material if there's a vision that they're supporting. Aligned to and, sure. And Mr. Musk hasn't laid out any sort of vision. He's, he's laid out the vision of being hardcore. And that's, uh, people really aren't aren't really into that these days. So, mm-hmm. um, and predictably, lots of employees left a thousand, uh, or, or well over a thousand at this point, leaving Twitter on the brink of collapse. So, you know, we'll keep watching this. Anything else from, from Twitter that you, that you want to talk about? No. Ever again? No? Okay. Good. I mean, I, we, off we stopped, we we stopped using it as a, um, <laughs> as a social yeah. media platform. And I know companies are no longer advertising, um, have kind of left, exited. Many of my friends stopped using it who were like avid Twitter. Like these are folks that were like using it for their news and using it for updates and no, use no other social platforms except for Twitter and have left. So good riddance. And I do hope, those again, those employees that are seeking really talented folks that at work at Twitter, I know a few. So those that, folks that are impacted, please feel free to connect with us if we can help in any way. Awesome. What's next? So I just, I read this the other day, really excited because I'm a, I don't know if you know this about me, Rob, but I played tennis in high school. We were state champs for four years in a row. Did awesome. you know this? I did. I did not know that. Okay. Well, I played doubles. You still so play tennis? Doubles. Um. Please that's a, that's a, answer that question. Um, I think if I I, I played a couple years ago, I think a bracket comes back, but I don't take the time to play. So, anyways, Wimbledon will allow women to wear colored undershorts in nod to period concerns. So, according to NPR's article in NPR and BBC coverage, um, Wimbledon's famously strict rules that required all white clothing for their players. Now is making an exception. So female players can wear dark colored undershorts beneath their skirts or shorts or sh- or skorts, as I've heard. Um, mm. The rules about white clothing initially began as a measure to prevent sweat stains from showing up on colored clothing. And now in the rule book, an asterisk has been added to the rules that permits wh- female players to wear solid mid dark colored undershorts, provided that they no longer um, they are no longer than their shorts or skirt. This change comes after some current and former players kind of addressed it and shared their distress around having to wear all white when they're having when they're on their menstru- you know menstrual uh, cycles and periods. Organizers of Wimbledon said that the new rule follows discussion with um, Women's Tennis Association, the WTA, um, clothing manufacturers, and medical teams, which is great. Um, so really cool, really excited that um, we've made these exceptions. Really progressive. I still think they're a little antiquated. <laughs> really progressive. In some manner. Really you know, progressive. 136 I mean, years in, right? 136 it, years yeah. in. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you remember, but like the tennis community in general gave Serena Williams like a really hard time when she wore, and even back in the day, like Andre Agassi, like people wore really vibrant colors instead of just all white and people gave these players like a hard time and to me it's like what's the harm like let these players i mean i understand there's like an etiquette but it's like come on like yeah to I, me, I, that was I don't get that the was the question i had are men being allowed i don't know if you saw it in here should men be allowed to do the same not yeah. so much for not for, for you know false equivalent equity but you know every time a woman is wearing dark under shorts yeah. They'll know when then she has is a now period. the now are we supposed to <laughs> is that drawing more attention 
to it. Um, and I think that that would have the issue of being distracting for them as well. So if men were allowed to also wear dark undershorts, then they could uh, support this effort in solidarity as an ally and as well. So um, agree. So small steps towards equity and fairness. And I still think they have a long way to go. So w, sure, you know, yeah. Wimbledon, WTA, tennis in general, because there's other, you know, we got the U.S. Open. We got other kind of places where people play tennis. I really like taking a hard look at like what are some of these antiquated rules and sure. fairness around them. Love it. All right, folks. Thank you, Rob, for those deets. Um, we will be right back after a few messages with our guest, Mary Fernandez. Welcome back. We're joined today by disability inclusion consultant, Mary Fernandez. Colombian born and New Jersey raised, Mary first ventured to the South to attend Emory University, where she majored in psychology and music. After graduating, Mary worked at a civil rights litigation law firm as a paralegal focusing on disability rights. Mary then held a variety of positions in the field of disability advocacy before starting her own consulting practice focused on web accessibility and inclusion. Mary received her MBA from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Mary is currently the lead disability inclusion consultant on Cisco's DEI team. Mary identifies as disabled, brown, and she uses she, her pronouns. She approaches the work from always centering communities and constantly listening and learning from the experiences of others. In her free time, Mary enjoys reading, romance novels and thrillers. Those are my favorites as well. Cooking, singing, and learning to play poker. Apparently, she said it's easier then it looks awesome. Mary Fernandez, welcome to Inclusive Collective. So good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Mary, so good to have you on. Um, thank you for joining us. So as a disability and inclusion consultant that's focused on equity and accessibility, what do you feel are the greatest barriers and then failings in corporations that are concerning accessibility? Well, <laughs> that's all we only I know have really 20 minutes. <laughs> are there any? Are there any? Are there any? Are there are any? any? No, we're yeah. good. That's, you know, I have worked myself out of a job. We are perfect now. I will <laughs> go become a professional chef. Um, You know, when, when you talk to the disabled community in general, I think that the one thing we agree on uh, is that it's the attitudes around disability that really impact our quality of life, our experiences in the world. Because when we think about disability, first of all, people feel great discomfort. They don't know what language to use. They don't know what to say. And even when you think about children asking about disability, so oftentimes when I walk down the street with my white cane, kids are like, mommy, what's that for? It happened the other day. It was me and my friends when we were walking down. And she goes, it's to tell them where they are. And my friend stops like, well, no, it doesn't talk. It doesn't tell us where we are. It, it's a tool to help us navigate to figure out what's in front of us and what's around us through, through tactile and sound, right? That's just one example of like, you know, kids' curiosity. And then we either shush them or give them bad information um, instead of just saying, I don't know, what are you going to ask them? Um, and then that curiosity becomes shameful later on. And what's really interesting about disability is that it's the one common shared experience that we will have from, from a perspective of, of being a minority at some point. 
at some point you will have with disability, whether that's temporary or permanent, which is why I use the term non-disabled, because it's not ability that we're going to share in common. It's disability, uh, whether you sprain an ankle, which I did the other day, or break an elbow or whatever the case may be. At some point, we will all be disabled. And so it's it's the attitudes around fear, around shame, and then ableism, right? Which is this notion that one kind of mind, one kind of body is superior than others. And, and the norm mm-hmm. that we establish is non-disabled. And then because everybody with a mind and a body can dis- experience Ableism is another common experience, but we don't often recognize it. And so the fact that we don't know how to unpack ableism um, and that oftentimes the people talking about disability, if at all, uh, in DEI are non-disabled, presents a a myriad of challenges because then you start getting, um, if there is a strategy, if there is a conversation at all, which is its own problem, we don't have enough representation disability is often forgotten in DEI. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do have a point of view, it's coming from non-disabled people. Mm-hmm. It's being led by non-disabled people. It's not centering communities. It's really led from this point of view. It's almost making non-disabled people feel better about themselves because disabled people are a charity case in essence. And that's that's a reflection of ableism. Then you start getting harmful initiatives that aren't actually centering disabled folks. Um, And so Mm -hmm. to me, that's really the biggest barrier. If we can start even learning how to talk about disability in a way that is constructive, that is helpful, if we can start recognizing our own ableism because we all have it, then we will be taking a step in the right direction around, okay, we at least understand the issue. We understand the core barriers. Then we can start dismantling them. Right now, I don't think that from that perspective, we even have a real true understanding. And then accessibility, to me, disability inclusion and accessibility are interlocked, but are not the same. Because accessibility really refers to how people are able to navigate, operate, interact um, in the world, whether that's physical, right, through like ramps and signage and being able to reach things um, at whatever height you might be approaching the world from. Um, That's like the infrastructure. Same goes for digital accessibility. Am I able to navigate, operate, interact, and use any tool, technology, software, platform in the way that it was intended to without barrier because I'm using assistive technology. So that's the infrastructure. That's, to me, that's the bar. That's the lowest common denominator and we're not there um yeah yeah Mary, just just uh just a follow-up on that and so yeah. if i am so let's say i am i, I run an organization uh, i feel like i've i've taken dei seriously but i yeah. i've listened to this conversation i'm like well i haven't done a great job on the accessibility piece of dei right it hasn't been mm-hmm. necessarily a primary focus and if step one is learn to have constructive conversations around disability What's the starting point there? What's the what's the tactical, you know, how do I start down that path? So for accessibility or disability or both? For either disability and then accessibility. So on accessibility, uh, that's almost easier because like I said, yep. it, it, this accessibility is an infrastructure piece. 
And so when you start thinking about from the tech industry, um, what we've seen of companies that are leading in accessibility, they created an accessibility office, right? And the key for accessibility is that you have to have governance and ownership and make it a priority. So when Apple started incorporating accessibility into all their products, they made it a priority that we want our products to be out of the box accessible for everybody and in as many ways as possible. Whereas um, back in the day, <laughs> like in 2014, mm -hmm. if you were blind and you bought a phone, you'd have to buy additional software for that phone. And then you would have to keep buying updates for that phone in order to be usable. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't compatible with all the phones. And so when Apple came around and did that accessibility and, and they were leading that, it was the first company to do it. It disrupted the market and it set a standard and a benchmark for this is important. And now we see it in most devices mm -hmm. that there is mm -hmm. some kind of accessibility technology built in. That is new. I was not able to buy a TV out of the box that I, I would be able to use mm. even 10 years ago. So that's oh, wow. massive. So mm -hmm. from an accessibility perspective, we still have a long way to go. And the first thing that a company really needs to do is A, make a commitment. We're going to do this. And then B, prioritize it. C, create governance and ownership. And then D, figure out how disruptive you want to be. Because it's not necessarily always having to spend more money, but you have to create an engine, right, that puts out accessible products. Mm -hmm. And that means that you it's a transformational motion. It's not a one and done motion. Sure. So you're transforming the way that you do business and you have to reallocate resources in order to kickstart that. And then you hopefully get to that maturity model that now you're maintaining um, rather than than starting from the beginning. So that's that piece from the um, accessibility perspective, from the disability inclusion, which is deeply interlocked. Right. So going back to that infrastructure, if I create a house where everybody can enter and navigate but then I don't train people to be able to connect across different. The people that are in there are going to have separate experiences. And so then we get into, at the very basic level, what is your accommodations process at your corporation? Do you have a centralized budget for accommodations? And the reasons that's really important is because you don't want different departments having different notions of how much they shouldn't and shouldn't spend on mm -hmm. disabled folks right it shouldn't really because when we leave it to that right all of a sudden you're giving the power to non-marginalized folks to decide what i do and do not need you give them the power to believe me or not on what i do and do not need and then you're mm -hmm. also setting the standard of every person with disability works differently mm -hmm. and so you're going to need different accommodations i always say like in my house, lighting is an accommodation I provide to sighted people. I'll need mm -hmm. the light. Mm -hmm. Sure. I love that. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I am making that accommodation for y'all. Right. And and in our environments, we uh, we create the environments that work best when you're non-disabled. Mm -hmm. And nobody comes into your house like, oh, that lighting's wrong. I don't like that. You know what I mean? And so right. it's the same. We have to believe uh, people and their experiences. And at the very least, you need to figure out how do you do accommodations? Because that informs a lot about how you're thinking about disability. And the second piece 
is representation. You have to have disabled people in the conversation and you have to hire them and you have to promote them and create a path to leadership and, and decision making. So, Mary, what does that look like? You know, when we think about folks that we recruit this talent, we mm -hmm. hire them. What are you seeing now where or what are you observing right now where managers and companies are seeking and asking, how do we make accommodations? Like, what does the conversation look like? And then what in the last maybe five or six years have you observed where there are actual truly like what are the actual accommodations that what are some examples of accommodations that are being made right now? Let me start with the second one. And um, so accommodations okay. are so all over the place in corporations um, because everybody do it, does it so differently. Like it's all over the place that I don't know that there is a trend. What there is, though, is there is a bigger trend and a bigger conversation around disability in general. Sure. Um, so you have companies like the Valuable 500, you have Disability In, um, you've had different initiatives to really think around disability. And I think that the conversation has now entered the universe where previously there wasn't even the conversation around disability mm -hmm. at all. Absolutely. And that has come from accessibility. So I always say you want to build accessibly because then you lessen the need for some, not all, accommodations. Um, so that is to say if um, I have... Uh, a phone that I use, right? Because we all use our phones with our work now, like my calendar, my email, everything works on my phone. Well, if I have a phone that hadn't had accessible software to begin with, then I need a separate accommodation for that. Sure. Then I need to figure out how do I work? So I think the real focus is how do we build accessibly? How do we build with that notion that we're going to build for the margins, knowing that we're going to include more people in the middle? And then how do you accommodate? Then that comes down to really understanding your privilege and understanding where you hold things that privileges in a way that you don't even think about, think about right. what the experience is for others. Um, and then believe people. If somebody tells you I need a Braille display, you're like, well, I met a blind person who didn't read Braille, so you don't need that. Like, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I think really believing people is is important. And you had the first question. I can't remember what it was now. How? Yeah, no, thank you for answering that. The first question was related to like how what are you observing right now where managers are having these like how are they having these types of conversations mm -hmm. to seek accommodations? Because what I've found in my in kind of my um, career working with, you know, middle managers and leaders is that. Sometimes they don't want to even ask because they're so afraid to yes. like break the law or offend yep. someone. And so instead it's like avoidance. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm wondering from your perspective, like how would a manager go about asking or seeking kind of that conversation to understand more around someone who's living with disabilities? There are systems that we can put in place to help facilitate that, right? And and hopefully I think all companies are doing this now, but in every step of the process of hiring somebody and onboarding them, making sure that you're asking if you need accommodations, do this. And then having an actual process, because what we find sometimes is that 
people will say, yes, I need this accommodation. And then there's no systemic process in place. And so that needs to be part of it. Um, the second part as a manager would be one, really educating yourself and finding resources to understand what the disabled experience is and also understand that disability is such a huge umbrella mm-hmm. um, that not everybody is the same and not everybody is going to experience marginalization and oppression at the same level. So if you have an sure. invisible Sure, and there's invisible and visible disabilities, yeah. right? Yeah. Absolutely. If you have an invisible disability, your experience is very different and you're going to have different struggles than if you have a visible disability. So for me, one of the biggest things is figuring out how do we provide awareness? And that's where I really kind of come down on this representation piece from DEI perspectives of like having that as part of your DEI strategy, as part of your DEI training, disability has to be in it. And that's where it has to live, that training, because you also don't want to burden marginalized folks with having to do all the education. So you don't want to go to your one disabled person in your team that you know has a disability. Be like, tell me about tell this. me how you feel. Yeah, what's your experience? Uh, and that right, right. And then we design the accommodations based off that one person when that's just maybe one or two disabilities that person's living with. And so yes, you know, exactly. So yes. Love that. So yeah, that self awareness and understanding for yourself what it may be like, and then creating opportunities for everyone to share um, or creating opportunities for people to share their needs. So one one very simple trick I, I tell people is when you're creating an event, always have a checkbox that says, if you need accommodations, check here and somebody will be in touch with you to discuss what that looks like, right? So for virtual meetings, maybe somebody needs ASL, but if they don't have a place to put that in, then they might not get that accommodation. Mm-hmm. So that's like very simple. How do you create so opportunities simply, right? for yeah. people to, to share? Hey, Mary, just want to continue to follow up on that. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how uh, workforce participation for people with disabilities is at an all-time high right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not high. It's at, it's at an all-time high. Yes. Uh, due to one, there's a widespread labor shortage. And then also... Mm-hmm the rise of remote work, right? Um, and so, but we're starting to see layoffs, uh, especially in your area of tech that you focus on. So, um, and and but and people really want their people back at the office for some reason in a lot of companies. And so, can you just talk about what remote work has meant to people with disabilities, and and uh, and and what are your what are the you know things you consult about in terms of companies? wanting to bring people back to the office. How do you do that in a way that is uh, inclusive? So I'll start with the first one. What does, what does remote work um, offer for people with disabilities? And it's actually been a huge game changer. One of the big things actually is that um, a lot of times when you start through that interview process and such, um, it's actually a big debate and most of us uh, that have visible disabilities, whether you disclose or not. Because as soon as you disclose, you're going to start facing discrimination. Like, that's just a given. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, people are going to make all kinds of assumptions. So me showing up on video for an interview is very different than me walking in with my white cane into an office where all of a sudden, it's like, it's amazing. It's like a switch goes off in people's head and they assume all of a sudden, I can't do all of these things. So that piece has been huge because 
it gives people a little bit of an option that not always of disclosing or not and at what point in the process they want to disclose. Um, I don't know that there's data around that yet, but I would love for some people to research around what, like, you know, compare and contrast, Mm -hmm. um, what hiring looks like, depending whether you disclose or not, depending whether you did your process virtually or not. So that's one piece. The other piece is just straight up transportation. Do you know how difficult it is to navigate the world like in a wheelchair? Yeah. Uh, 30, 30 years after that ADA was passed, we mm-hmm. still do not have accessible infrastructures. We, we just don't. So getting to and from an office is a logistical project that people uh, with mobility disabilities who are blind or low vision, like any disability, it, it's a project. It's mm-hmm. just a straight up project. And it takes up a lot of energy and it takes up a lot of mental resilience it takes a lot and so that piece of just literally not having to commute and deal with that has been huge and it removes a lot of barriers of literally how do you get to and from the office and how long it takes you and then there's the third piece which is around accommodations we create our homes to be accessible to us um and we choose places that are accessible to us so you don't have to Go into an office and recreate Mm -hmm. what you have at home in order to be the most productive um, that you can be. Mm -hmm. I think those are three of the big things that come top of mind to me. And, you know, I don't speak for all disabled people. Um, So anyone with a disability listening, like, well, that's not me. Like, I understand that. Um, But I think like trend wise, those might be some of the big things that affect that. And I think if you want to continue being inclusive, you have to think about hybrid work and then mm-hmm. also making sure that people that are working virtually um, and remotely aren't being disadvantaged by that mm-hmm. right we have to make sure that we are assessing people's performance and talent in a way that is fair across whether you're in an office or not that you have the same visibility and the same opportunities for visibility in leadership um, whether you're working from home or not. Like, that's really, really important. Right. Sure. Mary, it's interesting because um, I have a few clients that, that are in the industries of, say, construction, energy, environment. And oftentimes with many of these clients, I'll look at their job descriptions and mm-hmm. how inclusive they are. And it's interesting because we did a... Um, we kind of did like an audit for this one client who like 80% of the job descriptions were like, you have to carry, you have to be able to carry like 70 pounds or more. Yep. And like when we spoke to the recruitment team and the, you know, the hiring managers like, is this really true? Like, does the employee actually have to be able to carry 70 pounds or more? And they were like, no. And so I was like, well, why, why is it, why is it, on the why is it here? Right. And, you know, right. Because in my mind, what I find, especially when you're sourcing or you're trying to recruit people, like if I read a job description and it says like, you have to be able to carry 70 pounds, I'd be like, mm, can't do, I'm, the jobs might sound right. inter- interesting to me, but if I can't carry that, mm-hmm. then I'm going to be like, forget, I'm not even going to bother applying. And mm-hmm. not that every person that's a candidate is, is doing that, but I'm just curious, like, have you run into that? I know you're in the tech world and maybe, you, maybe, there's, maybe there's not a whole lot of 70 pounds or more to carry, but I'm so curious because I think of like, 
Amazon kind of calls themselves, say, like a tech company or an innovative company. But when you're working in the warehouse, for example, maybe you do have to be able to carry a certain number of pounds. So I'm just curious if you're seeing inclusive language and job descriptions evolve. I think it is evolving. I think um, of a lot of like the automated tools that exist now for kind of running your descriptions through them to see how inclusive they are. But a lot of them are really focusing on gender and race. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, that's where disability is missing from this equation overall. And it's interesting because it's the one intersection, right, where anybody of any identity can experience disability. So to me, it almost, and I'm biased because I'm disabled, but to me, it's almost like the the common denominator of when we think about inclusion, what does that look like for disability? And we can branch out into how it looks like for all identities that may experience disability. Um, so as far, I think it is evolving a little bit. I think that we're focusing on two um, main identities. And then I also know historically, and it still happens, there are industries and there are jobs and there are agencies and companies that specifically put in, you have to be able to carry X number of pounds and you have to have a driver's license mm-hmm. for any job. It doesn't no matter what it is specifically to screen out disabled people. Like mm-hmm. this is an actual thing that we know has happened historically and continues to happen right. in certain areas. Um, and some of it is intentional and some of it is unintentional, but it has the same effect. You know, I'm not sure why I have to be able to drive to do filing. Right. I, I'm not sure. What? Right. No, I can right. take a Uber. I can take a horse. You know, if there's somewhere to park my horse, I can take a horse. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you can get into the office some kind of way, how do, why does it matter how you get there? Right. Totally agree. And I'm I'm definitely going to start looking for a horse. That's a great idea. And then we need Just to create a to horse parking yeah. spaces. Yeah. Yes. Great. Horse t- hitching posts. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Why, why no hitching posts? Mary, we had so much, we're having so much fun with you today. Uh, I do want to ask, are there any resources that you, that you recommend for people that want to get a little bit uh, smarter on the topics of disability? be able to have inclusive conversations around disability, uh, and then also accessibility as well. Yeah. Um, great documentary that everybody needs to watch who wants to learn about disability, at least in the American context, mm-hmm. um, is Crip Camp on Netflix. Okay. Um, and it details the uh, disability civil rights movement leading to the ADA. In the Crip Camp website, there are so many amazing resources around um ableism learning how to speak about it all of those things there's an entire curriculum it is wonderful um and then the other piece i would say um as far as accessibility uh if you're a content creator of any sort using like microsoft tools the microsoft accessibility website has very detailed tutorials of how to make things accessible you know, and then you can kind of go down the rabbit hole, depending what it is that you want to focus on from an accessibility perspective, because that gets that it's a it's a huge world out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third piece I would say is always be reading and looking for things that are written by disabled people, um, content that is done by disabled people, uh, and and anything that you absorb. Because what I often find is that we rely on sources that are written by non-disabled people, and then mm. we get into a little bit of trouble 
because we think we learned something mm -hmm. and then we come to find out like you know we're using interesting language that disabled people aren't necessarily um using for themselves and the last piece i would say is always when you're having conversations pay attention to how people refer to themselves um i identify as disabled not everybody with a disability identifies as disabled I use identity first language. I say that I'm a disabled person, not a person with a disability because it impacts the way that I am able um, to move through the world and the way that I experience mm -hmm. the world. Um, mm -hmm. But it is really up to the individual to decide where they are in their journey and how they want to talk about themselves. So I think paying attention and really centering them in your one-on-one -on -one interactions is really important. I love that. Mary Fernandez, thank you so much for joining the Inclusive Collective today. We hope you can come back and join us um, again soon. Thank you awesome. all for having me. Thank you. Come back we'll and talk be. to us again. Okay. Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts. So yeah. Yeah, we have a lot, I, I have a lot more questions. So yeah, come back and come always, back and uh, talk to us again. I always say like I have a lot of opinions, and I I found a profession that allows me and pays me to give. Yeah, so I'm here for it. <laughs> so great. That's awesome. I love Thanks, that. everybody. Thank <laughs> you. Well, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Back from our conversation with Mary Fernandez. Nadia, your thoughts on, on meeting Mary and, and learning a little bit about uh, her perspective as a disabled person? She was great. Uh, I feel like I say that about every guest, but she really, I feel like I was starting to reflect on my own misunderstanding or misconception. I love that she pointed out some tactical tips that a manager can leverage and use. I think those are always really helpful. And then I appreciated her calling, reminding us that not every person has the same disability and that not every solution is going to solve for every individual, right? So like it's, it's almost like it's customized. We have to ask the questions, seek accommodations for these people and really be cognizant of that. So I thought that was really great. What were your takeaways? Similarly, humbling in terms of just thinking about my own, the work that I do and, and how do you bring more perspectives into the conversation, right? We do the best that we can as people that don't, that don't have any people who are not living with disabilities. disabilities. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so so how do we bring more voices in the conversation, even if we're doing design work and designing for equity? It's just a great idea to have someone that has lived experience in, in, in building out people processes as well. So really cool. I really hope to have her back and, and continue that conversation as well. Absolutely. It is the time. It is that time. We, uh, we, we did the coin flip. Awesome. All right. Lead us off. Rave it. All right. Rave. So uh, I don't know if you are a fan of um, PBS. I oh. am, but I'm a huge fan of... Are you? Of course. Of course. Okay. Well, there's NewsHour. My dad has for, forever been watching NewsHour at 6 p.m. Judy Woodruff this past week announced that she's moving on to another project, and so she's not going to be the, the main anchor. And so replacing her is going to be Amna Nawaz and Jeffrey... Bennett, both named uh, to take her over as co-anchors. They're both fantastic journalists. I've been following Amna uh, for a while. Love her. Um, excited. Both people are P 
people of color. Amna is a Pakistani American um, Muslim. So I'm personally very excited for that. She just represents so much to me and for me. And so it's really cool seeing these journalists uh, become co-anchors on a really, what I like to say is, um, tries to be the most fairest and honest and trying, you know, truthful journalist and reporting in the news industry. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so, it's, they, they, it's just, it's so boring. They just have like no graphics and they, they just talk for like, sometimes a news story, sometimes a news story can go, can go on for like eight or nine minutes and you're like, don't need all that. Right. Like people that uh, are tuned in for Fox news are like, what is this? What is this? Just like eight minutes of facts, one night after the other. So boring. Um, just kidding. No, that's awesome. That's the, the, I, I love that one. I'm going to rant and then we come back. Yes. So we'll, we'll end on a positive note. No, I think, but I think this is a positive note as well. In honor of Native American Heritage Month, uh, a House committee this week weighed a proposal to seat a delegate from the Cherokee Nation in Congress as a non-voting delegate. Seating the delegate would uphold a 200-year agreement, 200-year-old agreement. So I had the privilege this past week to attend an event where uh, with representatives from Utah, sovereign tribal nations. And there was a lot of history involved. Uh, They went through a lot of that history of broken treaties. It turns out there are quite a few broken treaties from the United States with the uh, sovereign. (laughs) So, yeah. So I think that, you know, this turns out it's a a nice time, right? Like we have Wimbledon turning, uh, you know, they're they're setting a new tradition, starting on a new tradition as well. So I think it's a great opportunity for the United States to start a new tradition of keeping its promises to sovereign tribal nations. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much to debate here. So Congress, that's, you know, all of them. Uh, you know, it's it's time to seat Tim, uh, Kim Teehee of the Cherokee Nation. So just get it done. That's my that's my rant. I love that. That's a that's a great rant. Can I go to my rate, my second rate? Yeah, let's do it. Big finish. I saw Wakanda forever last night. <laughs> Rob, it was amazing. Yeah? In a theater? Yeah. I saw it in the theater. I was me and my sister were like the only ones wearing masks. <laughs> but saw it on the big screen. It was the first movie I've seen in like four or five years in the theater, which is also ridiculous. But it was just so good. And obviously, like they honored Chadwick Bozeman, which was so special. And what I really loved is that they centered black women as like fierce and like power holding people that they are and they should be recognized for and i was just like yes 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 so if you have not seen it go see it it's so good all right well i'm going to try to go see wakanda forever then it's suitable for 10 year olds probably not right probably pg-13 Oh, I think so, actually. I'm not, you know, I don't know, but I All right, I we'll sneak him why. in. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, we'll sneak him in. All right, great time today, Nadia. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillion Media. We would love to hear from you. Send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, not Twitter. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting, Check out Nadia at NasConsultants.com and Rob at TecanoConsulting.com. Thanks again to our guest, Mary Fernandez. So much fun having her today. Uh, Look forward to having her again. 
We'll be back with you all next week. Thanks, Nadia. Thank you. Be well.